Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, where we'll be discussing Harry Potter through the theme of race. So before we get started, uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about how we identify racially. Cool. So I am half Japanese American and half white American, going back pretty much to the British Isles, but ages and ages and ages ago. And so do you identify as Hapa? Yes, I do. Should we define Hapa for our listeners? Sure. But how do you define Hapa? That's a good question. (laughs) So basically it comes from a Hawaiian word, kind of meaning half. And so people define it differently. It seemed to most often be like half Asian or half indigenous Hawaiian and white. I most often use it that way, but there's been a lot of questions, I think, more recently about people wondering, well, what if you're half Latinx and Asian? Are you Hapa? You know, what if you're half Black and and Asian? And what about, like, South Asian versus, like, East Asian, which is, you know, oftentimes what people normally think of. So, yeah, it's a bit of a fluid term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it here in Los Angeles mostly by people who are part Japanese. But I know that can also be used, or it has been used by people who are other Asian um, nationalities as well. So yeah, it's an, an interesting term. And the Japanese American National Museum last year had an amazing exhibit on, on Hapa identity and, and photography. Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was so cool. Yeah. This uh, photographer, which I'm forgetting his name right now, but he did this project. He took photos of like hapas around the country and then 15 years later took another photo of those same people. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. And then had each of them write how they identify back in, when they first took the photo and how they identify now. And that could mm-hmm. be as how they identify racially or ethnically. It could be ident- how they identify, you know, some were just like, I'm Steve, you know, like whatever <laughs> it might be. So it was really, really, really powerful and, and interesting yeah and that's it. you can look it up i think it's just called the hoppa Pro- project and so, you should look it up <laughs> yes certainly <laughs> so that was a bit of a, a tangent but yeah sorry. a cogent one i mostly identify as white my father was born in in tijuana um he himself is is mixed race his dad was a white american man and so uh and his mom was and his mom was mexican <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i have been pretty close with my my Mexican grandmother growing up. Um, she like I went to her house after school and stuff, and so I never was fluent in Spanish, but it certainly was something that that kind of I engage with. But I also don't necessarily feel comfortable calling myself Latinx or Chicanx or anything uh, in that area. So I tend to see myself mostly as white culturally, but I I also would identify as mixed race. Yeah, you said that you don't feel comfortable identifying as Latinx and and do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, um I think that I don't know, coming coming from, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, which is a Spanish-speaking city. It's interesting because I have I definitely understand the kind of borderland identity that sometimes go with goes with the Chicano or Chicana identity of 
of neither fully one nor the other, but kind of in, in this middle ground, um, especially in regards to being Latinx or being Mexican. So um, I have had many taco trucks or, or, or people I'm meeting on, on the street or whatever who start engaging with me in Spanish. And mm-hmm. sometimes I know just enough to be able to explain what I'm saying. Most of the time, I know just enough to be able to explain I don't understand Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, as soon as I start talking, they start talking to me in English, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I, I have enough phenotypical Mexican traits that often I am at least visibly understood to be that. But I don't feel like I can actually engage with them in that identity, oftentimes the way that they expect me to. Mm-hmm. And so I certainly feel a disconnect sometimes from really being able to say I'm part of that community. On the other hand, I suppose I'm, I'm not necessarily a borderlands person on, on the, the white side because I've gained a lot of the privileges of, of being white um, mm-hmm. as I grew up. I, uh, my family hasn't entirely been privileged. And I've, I've actually experienced some, um, you know, not persecution, but uh, what's the word for it? Racism. Racism, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bigotry, I think is what I was looking for myself, but yeah, so it's just, an, it's an interesting kind of identity. So mixed race is probably the one that after logically thinking it through, I, I would be most comfortable as, but I uh, tend to skew white, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because we have like, in some ways, the opposite experience. Like, you look like you would be at least half, right, Latinx. And I am half Japanese, but I look more white mm-hmm. than I do Japanese. So for me, I mostly get mistaken as white, which always growing up annoyed me um, because I was like, but that, that's not who I am. That's not my cultural experience. Um, that's not my family experience. Mm-hmm. But obviously there's privileges that come along with, you know, being white passing. So... Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting too, because we both share given names and family names that are from our white sides of the family, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you don't even have any, like I have a Japanese middle name, but you you only have white names. Um, Yeah. So uh, that I think also affects how how we often are interacted with Mm -hmm. or seen. And Um, that's one of the reasons that I chose to like hyphenate my, my mother's family name and my father's family name because i just have my father's you know because of the sexist practice but i was like this doesn't represent me and and yeah 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 my mom's side is full white been here for a long time mostly irish um but yeah i I think as i was kind of coming to terms with my identity it's like I, i i see myself as mostly white but I also identify way more Mexican than I do Irish. Mm. Like, I don't culturally have a lot of touchstones personally with Ireland and Irish culture. Like, I do have me- many more cultural touchstones with Mexican culture and I do mm-hmm. Irish culture from my actual lived experience, but nowhere near as much as many Mexicans or other Latinx people in Los Angeles. So, yeah, it's just kind of a weird, weird place. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. that's that's a pretty long, yeah. long intro, so... Thanks for staying with us so long. <laughs> um, Understand us. <laughs> but I think that the, those are important things to to come at this with when we talk about race, right? In that neither of us can speak definitively on, on anything but our own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important thing to, to 
set the stage with as we talk about these kinds of issues in Harry Potter, particularly in Harry Potter, where there's very few, like, really firm representations of race Mm -hmm. in the books, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, so much of it can be interpretive or headcanon stuff or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we go into our quote from Harry Potter? I believe that you have a quote from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapter 29, The Lost Diadem, where Neville is talking about what the Muggle Studies class has been like under the Karos. We've all got to listen to her explain how muggles are like animals, stupid and dirty, and how they drove wizards into hiding being vicious towards them, and how the natural order is being reestablished. So gross. Yeah, very gross. And and I think a really powerful quote, one, because it's showing, like, it's Neville in, like, peak badassery, which is great yeah. um, as, as a rebel leader. But... I love, like, the amount of dog whistles that are in that quote, you know, Mm -hmm. like, the amount of the kind of language that people use to dehumanize other races in our society. Absolutely, like, the animal, likening to animals is huge, not only with, like, genocides, which definitely that's been present, also just in everyday racism, too, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And And then, like connecting ability you know with that too like stupid and then also like class like oh dirty and and yeah all of these things mixed into one sentence uh and the the just incorrect historiography of that is Uh also intense um but i also love the the use of like the natural order you know this Mm -hmm. idea of obviously here it's not scientific but it it harkens back to this idea of kind of the eugenics of the 19th century of now that with the scientific revolution racism was established as something that was scientific you know this was Mm -hmm. based off of natural natural processes that caused social darwinism that Mm -hmm. caused white people and certain white people to just be better and Mm -hmm. it's disgusting yes Absolutely. And I love the use here of the word reestablish mm. because it it communicates this idea of we had this before and this was like the good way to be and we lost it and now we have to go back to it, you know, maybe to try to make some things great again. So Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think Everything we need is is packed into that quote. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Neville. Yeah, thanks, Neville. And another thing that I wanted to point out about it is just that when you see this quote, it's in the very last book, and it's, like, so intense, and it's so clear with everything that's happening. But, like, you go back to the first book, and you didn't see any of that, right? Like, there there were hints. Mm -hmm. You know, there were ignorant or, you know, kind of, like racist or bigoted comments or you know even jokes right but I really do appreciate definitely J.K. Rowling doesn't do everything right when it comes to race at all as we will see I'm sure in this conversation yes (laughs) but I do appreciate that it wasn't as evident at the beginning and it just slowly escalated like kind of with each book you know you have like book two the the word or the term mudblood come in, mm. right? And then you have, like, in four, 
actual like hate crimes happening right at the World Cup and so it's like you slowly see these things happen until there's the power of leaders who then just yeah try to do like this racial purification and essentially genocide and how so many people in the wizarding society just don't do anything about it Mm. and yeah I think I think kind of the escalation of that was really helpful because we do see some of those things here in our society, right? Like, oh yeah, of course, like there's ha- there's been this racism, but now it's like this emboldened racism uh, because you have power behind it. So, or you have overt uh, stated power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Very astute. Mm-hmm. I try. <laughs> Well, we should probably get into our actual uh, analysis <laughs> as we go true. through. That's true. Well, you have character. Um, I do have character. So my character is the Half-Blood Prince himself, mm. Severus Snape. And I chose Snape because if we're looking at the pure-blood, muggle-born dichotomy as an analogy for race, which I think is is tends to be one of the best uses of race, and, and certainly after we've talked so much about subhumans as the uh, ministry called them you know mm-hmm. things like house elves and centaurs in our personhood episode I-, I i wanted to focus more on this uh as kind of an analogy for race and i think that snape is an interesting example of that um of a certainly imperfect way of engaging with race and especially as snape looking at someone who's attempting to pass right So this idea of, like, being white passing, of someone who can get away with seeming white even if they and their family are not white, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so Snape, I think, we see him in the little that we know of him as a young person doing things that could be seen as, like, attempting to pass. Like, talking about himself as the Half-Blood Prince, focusing on the half of him that is from wizarding family you know and not his his, his actual fam- surname snape which is his muggle father's last name um and so kind of focusing on that and then you know riding with death eaters and kind of not being super obvious about his friendship with lily and and these kinds of things it's just it, i don't know as i was thinking about this question of race i thought it would be an interesting way to read his chapter in particular of you know, the prince's tale or what, or what have you, um, where you look through his memories through that perspective of someone who is attempting to pass uh, racially within a, a hierarchy that privileges non-Muggle-borns over Muggle-borns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to see because, like, we've talked about before, Voldemort and his internalized racism. Right. And and you have that here too. Like we we don't have really any evidence that he that Snape had a particular problem with his father versus his mother. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he he aligns himself with people who are against Muggles. And yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like trying to imagine myself like aligning with something that's against Japanese people you know like that's intense and so yeah the fact that that's what he did that that's yeah and and it almost feels like that's not even internalized like that is externalized self like targeted 
mm-hmm. racism, you know, um, because it, it's it's the way that he acts and the way he engages in the world, you know, mm-hmm. so much of of the reveal at in book seven of Snape is seeing how he for so much of his life has played dual roles. And that's one of the really interesting things is that by playing those dual roles, not only does he maintain, you know, mystery throughout the series, but he's able to play both sides in certain ways, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, he has credentials within both pro-Muggle-born and the anti-Muggle-born communities where both can entirely trust him as a soldier within their community. And Well... (laughs) I don't know that they entirely trust him. Well, <laughs> at least the leaders, Dumbledore. the leaders of <laughs> Dumbledore does and Voldemort does, right? Yeah. Um, and until he kills Dumbledore, most of the Order does, mm-hmm. who don't just hate him since they've been kids. But yeah. yeah, it's just an interesting dynamic there where it gives him a unique power within the war that because he has attempted to identify in ways that are passing or that that are leaning into one side of him but he maintains this other side like yeah it's this interesting navigation between those two aspects of his personality or of his identity and it's interesting too because if he wasn't the brilliant wizard that he is would he really have be- ever been accepted into the Death Eaters? Mm. You know, like, I think he- there, there's an intersection with ability, like, in, in the um, in the privileged spot, because if he wasn't that good at magic, yeah, right, they wouldn't accept him, but he's really good. Yeah, that's actually really interesting, because then I also look at Fenrir Greyback, who clearly has abilities, you know? They rely on him because yeah. of his abilities, but they're not going to make him a Death Eater. So for him, mm-hmm. it is about status, you know? Like, so there are certain hurdles in both senses. You know, there's hurdles of how useful can you be to the Death Eaters, but then also you, hurdles of how pure are you in these mm-hmm. these racist ideologies. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what's your plot? I want to talk about giants. Okay. And more specifically, kind of like that half giant experience of of Hagrid and Maxime, right? And so you have like Hagrid being horrified when it gets out and the whole wizarding world reacts to finding out that he's half giant, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, he was already ostracized and not not thought of well, but now that they have this news article and there's kind of proof, he he wants to quit and everything like that because he's just so horrified and people are like, "Oh, well my kids aren't going to be safe around him," blah blah blah. And mm-hmm. like even Ron, you know, like he's known Hagrid all this time, but he's freaked out by it. But Unfortunately, I mean, that's kind of a missed opportunity because nothing really becomes of it. He ends up staying and that's it. I think it would have been probably better if the governors had just removed him, Hmm. you know, from that position. Because I think that that's probably what would have happened in that world. Yeah, it gives Dumbledore very much a white savior kind of role there where he's he is Mm -hmm. the one with the power who can choose to, you know, maintain Hagrid's personhood because of what he says, not because of anything Hagrid actually did, you mm-hmm. know, because frankly, 
They're he's not, not a good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> he does put kids into danger. Not because he's half giant, but just because he's Hagrid. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. But as a, a grounds and, like, keeper keys, like, that that's totally fine. Yeah, he does know? a pretty good job. Only had a couple dangerous animals come through. Most of them, the other teachers knew about. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, for both of those two characters... I really liken it to white passing mm. status because they're only semi-acceptable or acceptable in society because people don't know that they're giants, mm. right? And they can have jobs and be employed and not, like, have to live in the mountains with giants where, obviously, there they would also be ostracized and everything because they're not full giant, mm. right? And so I thought that it was really interesting that there's like so much racism against giants that that made it so that Hagrid and Maxine couldn't even really support each other mm. because Maxine couldn't even admit that she was, which is, yeah, to me, that's just, it's so sad. It's like, they're the only two that they know of um, anywhere around that they could interact with, yet they can't really connect over that can't even talk about it or process it or anything like they have in some ways a shared experience but they can't share in it Mm. um and Hagrid wanted to right but Maxine didn't and I but I mean obviously I think that there's like this class chasm between them because she's a head mistress and Mm. like she made it there and he is definitely kind of lower class and and I think that also has to do with, like, she's a woman, too. She's not just half-giant, but she's a woman, too. And so I understand why she's worked so hard and, like, fought so hard to get in this position. She doesn't want it to all collapse. But, yeah, it's just, it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we haven't done identity with Harry Potter, but I know it's one of our themes. So I feel like we're hitting so much of that mm-hmm. here and in other things that we do just because it's such an important theme to Harry Potter. That what your identity does and doesn't mean to who you are and the choices that you make, you know, and what how you engage with your identity is so important. You know, the whole it's not who you are, it's what you do kind of mentality is so important because we see so many characters who have these kinds of half-blood in whatever ways type of identities and how they engage with those, be it Harry, Voldemort, Snape, Maxime, Hagrid, whoever, are really, really different and really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Way to have good books, Joe. <laughs> Well, why don't we move into what compelling question you have for me? Okay, so this question is a little bit more meta than than we tend to do. Okay. Considering that uh, the the way that race is engaged with Hermione, then the character of Hermione. <laughs> no, you're taking mine. It's okay. Now we can um, discuss. So, because um, as our listeners are probably aware, Hermione's race was never fully described in the books. It was mm-hmm. left ambiguous. She just described as curly-haired. and Frizzy-haired. Frizzy-haired, thank you. And so in the movies, she was cast as a white woman, or a white girl, then woman. And then in the play, The Cursed Child, she was cast as a black woman. And so I guess my question to you is, how helpful do you think it is to have ambiguous representation in a book mm. like this? I think it's only helpful in showing how racist society is. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> because of the huge like backlash that happened when uh, a black woman was cast as Hermione mm-hmm. and like just yeah all of the racism that's the only thing it's useful for which we don't need <laughs> so I would say it's not useful because when when people of color are vastly underrepresented like if a character is black you should say that they're black if if a character is Middle Eastern you should you know probably say that although I guess what does come with that is some amount of um white neutrality what do you mean like if they aren't described they're assumed to be white yeah so if they're not described they're assumed to be white and i think that's where the problem is obviously if you do very specifically describe then people can like make preconceived notions based off of that which is also frustrating but yeah they're they're gonna do that Mm. um yeah and i i I think i think that it is important that you say and since people of color aren't cast in leading roles and like all of these things as much if you don't say then that's you know not gonna happen either Mm. so i think that yeah i I think it's important but also if you're going to do it make sure that you do it well Mm. (laughs) you can't just like write a white character but then say oh but they're you know latinx Mm, you you have to be competent in in your writing as well Hmm. so not not, those are my thoughts initial thoughts yeah yeah i i I just now i'm thinking like if like jk rowling for example did specify every character's race she probably would have especially in the early books have to have written this white character this white character this white character you know so much that that's maybe a good thing because then it mm. does bring out into the open these ideas of like, how ooh. diverse is your cast. Yeah, you know? I, I agree that just straight representation is the best way to really engage with issues like this, right? But I also think that there is something to ambiguous representations of mm-hmm. characters. I think that, for example, even before that casting was announced, all the fan art I've seen of a uh Hermione and Harry as people of color mm-hmm. I think are really really cool and really interesting and powerful in interesting ways in some ways because they also speak to that person's engagement you know like I get to see mm-hmm. a little bit more of who that person sees as Harry or as Hermione yeah you know, that artist similarly uh, I've talked to you about this one of my favorite podcasts is the Adventure Zone um which is a Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast and the McElroys who host it have dealt with issues of how to identify their characters, right? And so they are they are four white men, but they have a very diverse community and they want to be able to engage with those community members. And so while they have they have now a graphic novel and there's been other kind of official ways of of representing these characters that they try to make diverse, they also have an an official statement that there is no official representation of how these characters look or what race they are. They are purposely ambiguous unless they have a reason not to be, which some characters have been. But otherwise, if you have an interpretation about that character, that interpretation is canon or is valid. And I like that as well. I think that I like that better than J.K. Rowling's 
oh, I always intended this to be the case, or, oh, yeah, um, you know, this can be the case over here, even if it's not over here, whatever else mm-hmm. it might be. Um, I think that she plays a little bit too much of trying to lay, lay, be on that line and try to say that she's always intended things that she may, maybe didn't, which reads as well, fairly I mean, insincere maybe to Maybe she did, I don't know, but the point is she wasn't doing it. She was didn't have an intentionality exactly. about it. Yeah. And, like, you need that to to do things responsibly right so totally but i i am kind of interested in like an idea of what if what if it was just like it described hermione and it described her having dark skin Mm -hmm. but then you know whether you're middle eastern black latinx southeast asian you could read that character as yourself but you know that they're not white and i'm not sure about that idea Hmm. but it's an interesting thought yeah, that's interesting too. But then again, like as you said, you also want to do things well. Well, where exactly. You don't want don't want to be like they are just representing all dark skinned totally. people because they're all the same, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, these are really interesting elements, and of course, the adaptation of a non visual medium to a visual medium also brings in extra mm-hmm. extra issues that go on there that we've definitely seen with Harry Potter. But, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So my question for you is. If Hermione is black, where do you see her intersectional experiences? Oh, that's a good question. And I'll just say, because Hermione is black, because yes. And now even when I read the books, like, unless it's this very specific scene from, like, a movie or, like, the exact lines, like, I actually only think of her that way, or primarily. Yeah, I see her as Emma Watson a lot, mm-hmm. but when I don't see her as Emma Watson, a lot of times I'll see her as, like, some of the fan art I've seen of, mm. of a black Hermione. And seeing the the adaptation of Cursed Child live that we saw, where they had a black actress for it, mm-hmm. was also really powerful, too. Well, and it seems like Cursed Child casting now, she's always black. Which, yeah, that's what it looks which like, is, which is yeah. great. Um, but her intersectional experience... Yeah, that's a an interesting question. I've read interesting analyses of her her character or headcanons of her character of always like needing to be right and like at the beginning of the book not having or caring so much about like social skills because she is she most likely has faced racism and sexism her whole life, mm-hmm. you know. And so she has always been the person or she may have always been, or she may have had an experience in her primary school where she raises her hand and they call him the white boy, and that she's not taken seriously in so many ways, and so she needs to go so far above and beyond what any other student does just to be seen as at the same level as others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's an, a really compelling look at that. Uh, I've never experienced either of those. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've been the white guy in class who's always got his hand up, you know. Yeah. So I can't say from personal experience what that would be like, but it definitely is, is has been kind of eye-opening for me. Was there, was there specific ways that you were seeing it? Well, I, I was kind of thinking about the fact that, like, when she's not really listened to or taken seriously mm-hmm. about what she's saying, even though she's right, <laughs> and and that being oh is it because she's a woman is it because she's black or obviously because it's both mm-hmm. <laughs> right and and i also kind of wonder if lifelong experience of of racism that she would have faced in the muggle world and then obviously in in the wizarding world as well if that does fuel 
some of her passion for like mm. reading the house elves and, and that sort of thing. Obviously, we can definitely read that as very much like a white white feminism like uh, tactic, and that that she does not do everything well. But if if she's red as black, it it's interesting still. Maybe it's just because she's a kid that she doesn't do everything well. Yeah, or, right? or I mean, looking at this intersectionally, she is still a human, you mm-hmm. know? And that does give her privileges over house elves in mm-hmm. ways that she doesn't always engage with well, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really And it would be interesting to, to go into a space where before you've been at the bottom, you mm-hmm. know? Like socially in a racist society. And then to go into a space where you're not anymore and you see other people there and how that would feel too yeah but then on the other hand the way that she interacts with when draco calls her mudblood for the first time Mm -hmm. she is not fear infuriated you know she is not Mm -hmm. like ron is the one who is just like super super upset obviously she didn't have the same like context that he did but like is there a reading there of she's just like she's used to this exactly that's something i was thinking about because like it happens to her a lot Mm -hmm. right yeah and also, I'm kind of wondering about her being muggle-born in some ways, kind of like a Hoppe experience, where it's you are in two different communities and you don't feel entirely home, at home at, in either. Hmm. And neither community fully understands you because you're both. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. That's interesting. And now I'm thinking of another like example of where this could have come out is when Rita writes about how she's, like, toying with Harry and Crumb's emotions or whatever, like, could that be leaning into characterizations of black women as, you know, mm. wildly seductive and, and sexual and, and, you know, all these kinds mm-hmm. of things that has gone along with assaults of black women and the terrible economic state that and political state that we put many of them into and have been for, for, for centuries, you know? Yeah. 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 And this idea of no one at Hogwarts thinks she's pretty until she, like, straightens her hair. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Good question. All right, well, I guess we should move on to our missed opportunities. My missed opportunities. But there, there's, there's so many. There's so many. <laughs> there's, there's too I many. I honestly <laughs> didn't even come into this podcast with one specific one because there's just a lot of them. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, just overall, she doesn't engage with race like explicitly she only uses analogy and metaphor she never straight up talks about how cho chang's race is going to affect her time Mm -hmm. at hogwarts or any other type of engagement with that the only time that she does is when pansy parkinson says that alien johnson's hair looks like maggots or snakes or something or worms i think you know when she's Mm. talking about her dreads like it's the one time that we see just a straight up racist comment um from pansy parkinson what a surprise but talking about intersectionality and talking about all these other things like we don't see any real engagement with with those issues and i think that it would have been really nice to see that particularly with someone like cho chang or pavari patil or some of the characters that are or lee jordan who are like clearly coded or clearly represented as a person of color like Mm -hmm. it's a step beyond even saying that hermione is black you know these characters are identified as people of color but they're also never engaged with in ways that say, like, how does that affect their lot, lived experiences mm-hmm. in this world? 
and that makes the world seem like a racial utopia, you know, like, like the wizarding world has moved beyond our prejudices and have their own prejudices. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I think that that is, is absolutely a missed opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. There's something I was kind of like wondering about too, like shouldn't the Patils and Cho Chang, like, like there's no cultural element to them really. And it would have been interesting to see that maybe they just had knowledge of something that others didn't because, like, they know in their family, oh, there's this other type of spell or there's mm. this other way of doing something that could have been good to show that, yeah, there was there's a cultural aspect to magic as well because there's magical people all over the world. You think that they're all going to do it the exact same way no they're not um but obviously it would have to be done well and not in this like weird exoticism you know orientalism sort of sort of way which i don't know if i would have trusted to been done that way (laughs) but it it would have definitely added something it's like it's not just oh we know that they're this race and that's it Hmm. yeah it's 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 unfortunate that the three like different cultures that we see of <laughs> of magic are all you Western European, you know, or Northern yep. European. Um, but with some like small hints at like, oh, there's flying carpets that exist too, and things like that. But it could have been uh, could have been done so much 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 better. Yes, it should have been done. It should have been done so much better. Yeah, I mean that that my overarching <laughs> missed opportunity is just that the lack of representation in, in characters because okay and I decided to look up a little bit like what was the actual racial breakdown when these books were written mm. and so apparently in 1991 which is when the first book is set was actually the first year in the UK, they had a census that had a uh, section for ethnicity. Okay. Um, they never had that before. Interesting. And so I just looked up what it was, and it was 94% white. Shocker. And then there was, like, other breakdowns. And so not that I'm saying, okay, everything should be done, like, just accurate to, to what was going on. Mm-hmm. But... It wasn't even done accurate to what was going on because if so, there should have been twice as many South Asian characters represented as black characters. And Mm. there's only the Patels, Mm. right? We never see any other. That's just ridiculous. And I I saw something. I haven't checked this, so maybe it's wrong. But there was something I was reading that said characters of color in the movies Mm -hmm. across the eight films their speaking time only (laughs) ends up being five minutes and 40 seconds i'm surprised it's that much yeah yeah wow so yes that's abysmal it's very very low and yeah it's really bad and you would hope i mean and now the country's even way more diverse than it was so Mm -hmm. now it's like where before it was like uh six percent were people of color mixed race uh now it's like 14 percent at least as of 
2011. So it's probably even more now, right? And But that doesn't even come out in the new Harry Potter movies. Like, you spend time in, in France and do you ever see anyone of Arab descent? Mm-hmm. No. You know? So it's just like, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that uh, it's interesting coming from an American perspective too because, like, I also assume that it's a more diverse country than it is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time... I think that for J.K. Rowling to be writing a story that is all about these metaphors for racism and mm-hmm. inclusivity and, I, and, and and how people are hated for how they were born um, and how people are treated differently based off of their identity and their blood. And then to not engage with that in realistic terms, mm-hmm. I think, is a little cowardly um, or at least unintentional. Yeah. At the very least... It shows the ignorance. Yeah. That like, oh, I can engage with these in concept, but not in like any tangible ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But before we close out, I have a comment that one of my best friends, Aaron, wrote me. And it it was after he listened to our Crimes of Grindelwald podcast episode. And I thought it was really interesting and perfect for this episode. So he's he's talking about Queenie and he said that he felt like it was an attempt to make white women who support Trump sympathetic and like she's an example of white supremacy in action. And there were so many white women with immigrant partners who still supported Trump. So Hmm. what are your thoughts? Like, I had never thought about it that way. But then when you said that, I was like, oh, like, that is really interesting. Yeah, whether whether it was intended to be that or not, it definitely, it's not a far jump to see that Mm -hmm. representation fitting that mold. Because, yeah, it is someone who claims to really know or, or love or be engaged with someone but then who is so ready to give up on that person's personhood for these wider concerns. I still think that it, it the criticism that we didn't see what, where those concerns caused her turn to come about mm-hmm. is a valid criticism where she, she's not, uh, we don't see how she was taken by that, you know, or where she had the, the background of seeing muggles in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think that a lot of the, the certainly the white female Trump supporters would have, you know, like even if they may have married a person of color, do they have their own internal biases that they attribute to large populations of people, right? Mm-hmm. That aren't, that aren't, haven't been. Well, I've got there. a good one. Exactly. <sighs> and so, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting take. Well, and I, I think it's very compelling too, in the sense of, she doesn't think she's being that way, mm-hmm. right? She may think, oh, well, it's because of this other reason that I'm doing it. Mm. But maybe it's just like these these messages aren't like saying, oh, all these people should be blank, right? It's a little more subtle than that, but still everybody who's oppressed under it can see, oh, this is terrible, mm. right? But yeah, there's probably just something a little familiar in, in what's being said, and it resonates without a critical look of why does this resonate mm-hmm. with me, right? And, yeah, and the fact that you, you've you liked her character in the past 
movie. And so then when she does this, you're kind of find, trying to find reasons to justify why rather than being like she is basically joining somebody who's going to oppress others. Yeah. It's interesting because Grindelwald used more dog whistles than the overt messaging of Trump's, right? Like Grindelwald talks about for the greater good, you know, and things like that when he's planning genocide or he's planning, Mm -hmm. you know, enslavement. Trump is straight up like, they're criminals. Like, I am putting (laughs) all of my cards on the table. No no subtlety at all. There's still some interesting parallels there. But yeah, I think that's an interesting viewpoint for sure. Well, yeah, and I mean... I think it's interesting that she's really upset about the inequality when it pertains to her, mm-hmm. right, and her relationship. But then when it comes to, like, wider things, she'll join with the, yeah. the inequality that'll oppress others. Queenie, there's lots wrong with that. <laughs> Queenie, if you're listening. Queenie. You're wrong. <laughs> It'll be interesting looking forward. I don't think that they're doing that for the purpose of then critiquing it, right? So that's that's unfortunate, but we, we can yeah. critique it. That's yeah, what we, we're here that's for. That's what we're here for. We're geekily We're critique the geeks it. who critique. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks to Aaron, because always, always bringing that, that, those compelling questions. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we should probably turn to what we're doing next week. Okay, so we are going to be talking about family in Lord of the Rings. Very well, very well. All right, well, until then, we want to thank you very much for listening to this episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. You can also go to our website, bit.ly slash geekbetweenthelines, or go to our Patreon site at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. We also want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pestel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Until next week... Geek out. out.